Well, uh, it doesn't really matter, seems like it doesn't really matter what is happening in the world because being here with you never fails to be an incredible encouragement. To remind me and hopefully you as well that uh, this is not our home. This is not our home. We're looking for a better city, celestial city in which there is no politics or corruption, division. And it never fails to encourage my heart to be with you, to remind ourselves of the ultimate reality, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and him reigning upon his people. And what we're doing here this morning is simply to reflect and to learn how the work of the Lord Jesus Christ changes us in a very practical and real way. So please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. For those of you who are maybe guests this morning, we have been in the book of Ephesians for, I don't know, ever. ever. That's a good word. That's a good word, forever. And, uh, but we are reaching the end now. We're in chapter 6. I never thought we would get here, but we are here. And this morning, we are considering verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 6. Let me just read beginning verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So fathers, parents, this is for us this morning. Last week was our children's turn. Now it is our turn to pay close attention to God's word. I want to begin this morning by asking a few questions. But these questions are not directed at you. You may be surprised to hear that. I'm asking these questions into the future. Do you realize that it is possible not a guarantee, but it is possible that my grandkids and my great, great, great grandkids could potentially watch this sermon a hundred years from now. They could potentially listen to the sermon a hundred years or more from now because of technology. So I want to ask these questions of my great, great, great grandkids with the hope that someday they will listen. Here are my questions for you. Children, have you ever heard of the mighty acts of God in Christ Jesus from the mouth of your parents? Has the gospel of grace been declared to you? Have you come to believe that Jesus is the son of God? the savior of sinners? Are you resting in the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the glorious resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the eternal salvation of your souls? Have the mighty acts of God been declared to you? Please know what I'm not asking. I'm not asking whether you enjoy great health or are suffering through illness. Neither am I asking you whether you have great wealth or are struggling through poverty. 
nor am I asking you whether you're living in a perfect political democracy or under a tyranny. All those things, important as they may be, pale in comparison to this one question. Do you know the mighty acts of God in Christ Jesus and are you delighting in them? Nothing in your life matters most than the answer to these questions. Now, let me bring this back to the present. Parents, do you realize that the answer to those futuristic questions could be potentially determined today? In fact, if there is one utterly important phrase parents should do well to consider often is this, from generation to generation. That little phrase sums up our duty, and it says our entire role as parents within its proper context. But let me try to, be, to put this in different words. As parents, we are here to be stewards. But stewards of what, you may ask? I'll let Psalm 145 verse 4 answer that question for us. Listen to this. One generation shall command your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. That's the answer. That's what parental stewardship is all about. Parents are to take this wondrous revelation of the mighty acts of God in Christ Jesus. Know this revelation, treasure this revelation, and distribute this revelation so that the next generation can also know and delight in the mighty acts of God in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter what is happening in the world. That is your duty. In other words, by God's good design, Christian parents are placed over their children and given authority over them for a specific amount of time, which only God knows, for the purpose of managing his written revelation within the context of the family. In this sense, William Gurnall, a Puritan, was very much correct when he said, and I quote, every private family is a little nursery to the church. Parents, I don't mean to place an exuberant amount of pressure on you. Actually, I am. <laughs> but what you do in regard to your children is highly, highly consequential. Let me try to put this in a, in a broader perspective to see if I can make the point clearly. God entrusted his message of salvation to prophets and apostles. Correct? Yes. This is, this is yes. Through their ministry, God established the theological foundation for the people of God as he revealed heavenly truth to them. After the apostles and the prophets came pastors, teachers, and evangelists who take that revelation, they teach that revelation, and they propagate that revelation within the church and around the world, correct? Correct. But from the very beginning, the crucial agents for effective spread of gospel truth in the world have been parents. Why? Because if gospel truth gets lost within the home, it will be lost elsewhere. This morning, our passage is going to give us a guide as to how to do this effectively in a way that honors the Lord. We are answering one question. This is the question. How can we, as parents, be good stewards of God's revelation in Christ so that the next generation knows and delights in it. 
In other words, how do we become godly parents? Now, even though this verse is not exhaustive in its treatment on parenting, it is nonetheless essential. So here's the first point. And you can follow along in your notes if you so desire. Godly parenting consists of, number one, one general prohibition. One general prohibition. You have it right there in your verse. Verse four, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. I don't know about you, but I find this prohibition quite intriguing to say the least. Here's why. These words seem to somewhat defy the logical order of family relationships, don't they? Did you notice that? What would be our natural assumption when it comes to the parent-child relationship? In other words, if we were the ones writing this letter, if I would have written this letter, what would it sound like? I bet it would sound something like this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children, honor your father and mother. And children, do not provoke your fathers to anger. Right? Let's be honest for a moment. That's, that's what makes sense. After all, at least in our minds, aren't the fathers more susceptible to being provoked by the children than the other way around? It sounds a little bit counterintuitive to say the least. I bet most fathers here can remember being provoked to anger by their children and probably more than once. Maybe as recent as this morning. So I can anticipate several objections to these words. I can almost hear some fathers say, well, what do you mean, Paul? What is this kind of teaching? Are you forgetting that we are the grown-ups? We are the mature ones. And we are, being the, the, we are the ones being provoked, but the immature ones. What about all those times we had to wait in the car with the engine running, waiting just for our kids to be finally ready to go? We're wasting gas and time. What about those times when my kids didn't do what I asked them to do? What about their rebellion, Paul? What about their stubbornness? What do you mean, Paul? Your logic seems to be malfunctioning. Why are you directing these words to us, fathers? Why this surprising reversal? Now, in answering this question, we need to look at two specific elements. First, we need to look at the world in which, I'm sorry, the words Paul uses, namely fathers. Secondly, we need to look at the historical context in which this letter was written. So first, why does Paul address fathers rather than fathers and mothers? Why doesn't he say parents? Why the specificity in Paul's language? Well, on the one hand, the context does indicate that Paul is addressing fathers because they are the head of the home. And in a sense, they represent both parents. Therefore, both fathers and mothers are included in these verses as both have direct influence upon their children. However, this is not the end of the answer. Paul is being as specific in his language because in an ultimate sense, and especially in the ancient world, the male, the father had supreme responsibility over the discipline of his children, brothers and sisters. Other than circumstances that are outside of your and my control, the father still is the head of the household. 
and he does hold a prominent role in the upbringing of his children. That is the first reason why Paul addresses fathers. But there is a second reason. In ancient times, fathers were very, very powerful over the affairs of their families, both in Roman and Jewish context. This power led many fathers in the ancient world to become extremely harsh in the way they treated their family members, especially their children. Listen to what one commentator said, and I quote, a Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could, he could make them work in his fields, even with chains. He could take the law into his own hands and punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on a child, end quote. It was a brutal world. Harsh treatment was a common practice, which would have led many children to anger, bitterness, and resentment on the part of the, the children. Therefore, Paul is making much of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is pointing at the biblical fact that the work of our Lord Jesus does indeed make all things new, even parenting. In other words, fathers who are in the Lord see themselves as servants, but no longer as servants of their own passions and their own desires, but as servants of the Lord and as stewards of God's revelation. In other words, at this point, Paul is simply assuming the supernatural work of God within the heart. Thus, fathers need to submit themselves to this higher calling and their God-given authority within the home must be used not for self-interest, but for the advancement of gospel truth in the life of their children. That's why you are a parent. Now, what does it mean to provoke to anger? What is it that we're not supposed to do? We do live, after all, in a different world. Maybe that harshness was true of the ancient Roman world, but it may not be true of our world. Is there an application still for us? Very much. Even though our modern context may not be exactly like the ancient Roman world, there's much that we can do as parents to provoke our children to anger. And here I want to make a connection. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson is very helpful here. He says this, and I quote, Paul's words provide, provide a valuable litmus test for a father. And then he asks the following question. What specific sins in me may provoke my children to anger? This is a question that all parents need to ask themselves. What specific sins in me may provoke my children to anger? Listen to how Sinclair Ferguson made a connection. He makes a direct connection between provoking our children to anger and specific sins in our lives. Now, brothers and sisters, at this point, I could list many sins that could provoke our children to anger. And the list could get, could get quite long and very fast. One commentator suggested these possible sins that could lead our children to anger. And I quote, reactionary flare-ups. Overly harsh words, insults, sarcasm, nagging, demeaning comments, inappropriate teasing, unreasonable demands, and anything else that can be perceived as provocative, end quote. And I suppose there is a sense in which doing this exercise and going down that list in more detail could be profitable, right? 
and take a, an inventory of our specific sins might be a good thing. But this is not what I want to do this morning. Instead, I want to address this issue from two different angles. First, we'll draw an insight from the context leading up to this verse in the book of Ephesians. Then we'll look at the second half of this verse. And hopefully that will give us a comprehensive answer as to how we can provoke our children to anger. It will be my contention that there are essentially two general sins that can provoke our children to anger. Let me see if I can show you the first one from the context. Go back with me quickly to chapter four, verse 25 through 32. What did Paul say then? Paul tells us to stop lying and to speak the truth, to not be dominated by sinful anger, to not steal and to not use our mouths for corrupting talk and to put away wrath and malice and all along in the home, the eyes of our children are watching and their ears are listening. In chapter 5, verses 3 through 14, we are told by the Apostle Paul to flee from sexual immorality, to avoid foolish talk, and to walk as children of light. And all along, the eyes of our children are watching and their ears are listening. In chapter 5, verse 15, Paul tells us to make the best use of our time. And all along, the eyes of our children are watching and their ears are listening. In chapter 5, verse 18, Paul tells us not to get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And all along, the eyes of our children are watching and their ears are listening. In chapter 5, verse 19 through 21, Paul gives us instructions as to how to behave with the people of God. And all along, our children are watching and their ears are listening. In chapter 5, verse 22 and 24, wives are told to submit to their husbands. And all along, the eyes of our children are watching and their ears are listening. And then in chapter 5, verse 25 through 30, husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And all along, the, ear, the eyes of our children are watching and their ears are listening. Do you get the point? Let me just point out one sin that can include many other sins and the one sin that I firmly believe can lead our children to anger like nothing else, hypocritical living. What do I mean by hypocritical living? I mean this, a known and ongoing disconnect between our lives and our confession, whether private or public. Here's what I think Paul is getting at. Parents, we must live with our children in such a way that our words and our actions match our confession, both in private and in public. I can tell you this much. Nothing can bring more discouragement and evoke more anger in our children than when they see little connection between what we say we believe and how we actually live in front of them. Why? Because the greatest witness to the mighty acts of God in Christ Jesus is a life undergoing transformation. Or to put it a bit more directly, when it comes to godly parenting, the character of our lives is just as essential as the content of our instruction. But what is the second sin that can lead our children to anger? For that, we need to look at the second half of verse 4. Notice how Paul sets, sets two things in contrast to each other. Provoking to anger is set in contrast to what? 
discipline and instruction, which gives us a clue as to how we can provoke our children to anger. Provoking to anger is, in other words, has to do with character, but also with failure to discipline and instruct, which are two, the two remaining elements of godly parenting, which is the second point in your notes. Godly parenting demands, godly parenting demands two specific actions. I cannot think of two words that hold more weight and are more consequential in the duty of parenting than these two words, discipline and instruction. Let us be clear from the beginning then that unlike what the world wants to communicate, love does not exclude discipline and it does not exclude instruction. Love and discipline are not mutually exclusive. Rather, love motivates them. This is, in fact, the best way to understand our duty as parents. Parenting is love expressing itself through discipline and instruction for the purpose of molding the children to be lovers of God. What do I get that from? I get it from that little expression Paul uses. Namely, he says in verse 4, Father, do not, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. Bring them up. In Greek, that is one word, and it is the same word Paul used in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 29, when he talks about nourishing the body. It has the idea of tenderness and careful attention. Think of a lady tending to her flowers in her garden. She looks attentively and she prunes diligently to ensure the health of those flowers. This is why parenting is really love expressing itself through discipline and instruction. Discipline and instructions are the tools for pruning. What is pruning? Well, it's a, it's a, that's a wonderful word because it helps us think of parenting. Pruning means to weed out unwanted and unnecessary things. Are there any unwanted and unnecessary things in your children. So here's the starting presupposition of all godly parenting. Are you ready? It's going to blow your mind. Kids are not born saints, but sinners in need of redemption. Godly parenting can be the means by which God brings it to pass. Now, here's another inference that we can easily make from this verse. Paul says, bring them up, bring them up. It is an expression that assumes the importance of time. This is important. In other words, bringing them up doesn't happen in a day or in a week or in a year. It takes time. Parents will at times, and let me be careful here, parents will at times place themselves under the pressure of making things happen quickly for their children. They want spiritual growth and, and things to happen quickly for their kids. For instance, all true Christian parents have a desire to see their children come to Christ through faith. And this, my brothers and sisters, is good, it is proper, it is expected. 
But be careful because this good desire can sometimes blind parents to the reality that this doesn't happen normally overnight. But that it is a process that requires ongoing care for their souls and a constant exposure to the gospel until when? Until Christ be formed in them, as Paul said in Galatians. Now, how does this happen? Well, two words, discipline first. Understandably, we might be used to thinking of this word in narrow terms, meaning as corrective punishment. So many of you might be thinking of verses like Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24, where we read, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. In this verse, it's a reference to corrective discipline. Or Proverbs 22, verse 15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And all that would be correct and appropriate. Discipline does include the element of corrective punishment. However, this word can and does have a much broader meaning than just punishment. Throughout the biblical record, the word discipline is used more comprehensively, and it has the idea of training behind it. For instance, this is the same word Paul used in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It is the same word, just is, it is translated as discipline in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Therefore, discipline includes the rod of correction, but it is much more than that. Discipline is about molding the character. One very reputable Greek lexicon explains this word as the act of providing guidance for responsible living. The act of providing guidance for responsible living. And this is what I mean by comprehensive. This word entails everything a father does to provide guidance for living in a way that is consistent with the Christian faith. And then secondly, Paul says, instruction. Instruction. This comes from a Greek word that is actually very important, nothesia. Some of you who are involved in the biblical counseling movement might recognize this word because this uh, word was taken by Jay Adams, and then he coined a term, uh, which he called nothetic counseling. It comes from this word, nothetic counseling. It can be thought of primarily as exhortation, admonition, and even warning and rebuke. But it is a very precise word. It has the sense of impressing something upon the mind. So we could say this way, to instruct is to leave a mental mark through the use of words for the purpose of godliness. That is to instruct. To instruct is to leave a mental mark through the use of words for the purpose of godliness. Whereas discipline has to do, and it's more comprehensive, and it has to do with the general molding of the character. Instruction has a narrower sense, and it refers to the dispensing of words for the purpose of godly influence. Now, but I want you to notice something about these two words, discipline and instruction. They have a common denominator. Did you notice it in the verse? They have a common denominator. These two actions of godly parenting are attached to one critical qualification. What is that one critical qualification? He said, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Of the Lord. What does that mean? 
Well, commentators, I read several, and they basically propose three options. It can either read as in the discipline and instruction about the Lord, okay, that's an option, or it can be a discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. How does that sound? Sound good to you? How about this one, the third? It can also be discipline and instruction in the sphere of the Lord. So about the Lord, or that comes from the Lord, or in the sphere of the Lord. Which one sounds better to you? Let's take a vote. No, we won't do that. Which one is it? Well, here's what I propose. There is no need to choose between these options. Why? Because the bottom line is this. Our parenting is always to be God-centered, meaning that our children submit to our authority is important, but it is not the main goal of parenting. Neither is the main goal of parenting that our children be successful, although that should be our desire. The main goal of parenting is God. The main goal of parenting is that through it, our children will know God in Christ Jesus. Parents, can you say that this has been and is your priority? Think on that question. Let me finish by giving you some words of counsel from a man, a Puritan that I have already quoted, William Gurnall. And more than words of counsel, this is uh, really an appeal, an earnest request to parents from this Puritan. Here's the first thing he said. Parents, your relationship to your children demands that you care for their souls. Your relationship to your children demands that you care for their souls. This is why God placed you over them. Now, let me take you back to Paul's instruction to children that we saw last Sunday. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Parents, did you notice that even the instruction given directly to children falls under your jurisdiction? Did you notice that? How can we expect obedient children if we as parents walk in disobedience to the Lord. Listen to these words by Gurnall, and I quote, your children have souls, and these God sets you to watch over. It will be a poor account at the last day if you can only say, Lord, here are my children. I bred them the com complete gentlemen, left them rich and wealthy, happy if you would have left them less money, which rusts, and more knowledge of God, which endures forever. Here's a second word from William Gurnall to parents. Parents, what you do with your children can be a great window into the spiritual condition of your own soul. Let me repeat that. What you do with your children can be a great window into the spiritual condition of your own soul. Listen to these penetrating words from Gurnall, and I quote, Truly, I think that a man may call into question his own Christianity, who takes no care to acquaint his children with God and the way that leads to him. And then he says this, I have known some that, though profane themselves, have been very diligent to ensure that their children should have good education. But never, I never knew a saint that was indifferent whether his child knew God or not. 
what you do with your children can be ultimately reflective of the very condition of your soul before God. Here's the third thing he said. Parents, the early stages of your child's life, listen, are the best season in their whole life for planting in them the knowledge of God and plucking up the contrary weeds of atheism. Young weeds come up with most ease. I love that. Diligent, godly parents should always pray with hope for the salvation of their children, but always within the sphere of spiritual formation, meaning by the use of discipline and instruction. In other words, you have a duty toward your children. Let me put it this way. Children are born spiritually deformed. They may be beautiful on the outside, but they come in with an incredibly deep spiritual problem. They are born in Adam. Children are born spiritually deformed. If we don't work diligently at shaping their souls through godly discipline and gospel instruction, their deformities will eventually harden. And just like those degenerative illnesses of the muscles that become worse over time, so also atheism, if left unattended and unaddressed, will ultimately solidify in the heart. And here are just last two, two last words, but these are from me. These are from me. Parents, listen, you will never handle, you will never handle a more precious treasure than the soul of your children. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how successful you have been in, you have been in your career. I don't care how beautiful your car is parked outside. You will never handle a more precious treasure than the soul of your children. Treat them with the utmost care because you know what? Their souls are eternal. And your greatest tool for the care of their souls is the word of God. So here's my advice. Do what you can and do what you must to be well acquainted with the word of God. Avail yourself of every opportunity afforded to you to grow in your knowledge and your devotion to Christ. Your children will be the first to receive the spiritual benefits. And finally, here's my last word to you. This is from me to you. Parents, above all things, pray for their souls. Why? Here is why. I don't want you to go home thinking that Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 presents us with a type of mechanical formula for the salvation of our children. Ultimately, please listen to this, our parenting is not what saves our children. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Do not provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and do not forsake prayer. Why? Prayer reminds us that at the end of the day, God is God. He is the one who calls. He is the one who saves and he is the one who transforms. Parents, don't put your hope in the greatness or the weakness of your parenting. Rather, continue to put your hope in Christ and his finished work for us, for in him we rest. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this simple but timely reminder 
of our incredible responsibility that we have as parents. I know that uh, in this room, Lord, there are many who have uh, maybe finished that stage in their lives. and They have seen their kids grow and leave the home and start their own lives. And it is possible that many of these parents are feeling a burden uh, for maybe things that they could have done differently. I pray that even in the midst of maybe conviction, they will ultimately rest in Christ, that he is the one who saves us and that we are not accepted or rejected by you based on the success of our parenting, but ultimately our hope is in the Lord Jesus. I pray for those parents who are right now in the midst of raising up uh, the next generation. Help us to be mindful of the fact that our greatest our greatest responsibility is to be good stewards of the revelation that you have left us and to call our children to delight in the Lord Jesus Christ, to tell them about the mighty acts of God in Christ. And we pray that out of this church, out of this body, you will raise up families that will love you and that will know you and that our children, Father, will be awakened to the reality of their sin and their need for a savior and that they will come to him in repentance and faith. Thank you for your instruction. Thank you for the guidance of the Spirit. And now help us to apply what we have learned. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.